0: Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on them. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people
1: in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, the Concord Coalition policy team, including Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I will examine President Biden's FY 2023 budget, which was released on Monday. Last week, the Concord Coalition published a set of criteria for evaluating the president's budget, and today we'll go through some of those criteria and see how they match up with the actual budget. So, Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Now the budget's out. And uh, so before we get started with the criteria, I wanted to make a few background points uh, about presidential budgets. Um, You know, first, uh, presidential budgets are advisory. Uh, Ultimately, it's Congress that has the constitutional power of the purse. But we look at presidential budgets because they are certainly influential when you have a situation like now where the president's party uh, holds a majority in the House and Senate. And the second background point I wanted to make is that this budget uh, comes at a time of great uncertainty, unusual uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you think about the. Uh, The the multitude of crises facing the government right now, we still have problems with the uh, global health pandemic. Uh, There are supply side shocks that seem to be uh, hanging in and might even be getting worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, we have the war in Ukraine uh, that threatens to ensnare NATO. We've got uh, climate change issues, growing risk of a recession or even stagflation. Uh, as the Fed tries to engineer a soft landing, the third and final background observation is that uh, this budget uh, comes on top of a budget situation that was already unsustainable, right. uh, even before all that other stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> that has come up recently happened. So you know, you're the White House, you're the president, you're putting out a budget. You got all this stuff. Uh, let's let's b- before we get into some of our criteria. What uh, what general observations do, do you have, Tori and Steve, about this budget?
2: So I I look at this budget. To me, it looks largely like a campaign budget. You know, we've got uh, Democrats in the House and the Senate are running for reelection uh, this fall in November. Control of both chambers is potentially up for grabs. And so I see this as a as a budget that that helps Democrats campaign. Um, You've got. You know, they put uh, an end to help insulate Democrats from Republican attacks. You know, there are a whole bunch of things that Democrats can point to in terms of uh, more money for education, uh, more money for criminal justice and, and policing efforts. Uh, there's a big uh, increase in, in defense for fiscal 23. Um, there are tax increases on the wealthy. Um so, yeah, I, I look at this as sort of a, a budget that's built for campaigning and to help Democrats uh, withstand uh, criticisms from Republicans on the campaign trail.
0: Steve? Yeah, so I, I'll make an int- uh, observation. So by law, the president's budget is due on February 1st. And here we are the 20 yesterday, the 28th of, of uh, March. So the budget was late, and uh, the assumption I think was that well there were a lot of things going on and it made it hard for them to to put the budget out, and you know people probably don't realize I mean the the the, federal, the president's budget is a massive undertaking it's a huge mm-hmm. document, mm-hmm. and when when the when, when when the budget came out yesterday the thing that I found most striking was that the things that would have you would have thought would have caused it to be late, for example updating the economic assumptions. Um, updating the appropriations. I mean, there were, there were things that plausibly could have caused it to be late. And in fact, the budget reflects none of those things that would have caused it to be late. Moreover, the budget is not even complete. The documents that were released yesterday are, are still, you know, parts of them are still missing.
1: Troy, one of the first criteria that you might expect for, from the Concord Coalition is whether mm-hmm. or not budget deficits are uh, uh, going down in uh, every year of the budget window, what do what do we find here?
2: Sure, I'm going to give you the classic Washington answer on that one, and the the answer is well, it depends on how you're evaluating. When you look at at deficits on a pure dollar uh, basis, then no, absolutely not. Deficits are not going down. Uh, we've got you know deficits deficits are rising every year. Um, and deficits are also in excess of a trillion dollars in each year of the budget window. So that, in and of itself, is daunting. Um, another way to look at the, this, though, is deficits as a percentage of GDP. And and deficits as a as a percent of GDP, um, you know, they're definitely smaller than they were, you know, during the pandemic. Um, and they they bounce around a little bit. Um, uh, so you know, right right around in the the four and a half. Uh, percent range. Um, some years are higher, some years are, are lower. So when you look at it from that perspective, uh, deficits are not necessarily higher. But then I'm going to caveat that answer and say that when you're looking at deficits as a percent of GDP and you've got a really robust assumption when it comes to to GDP, then obviously your deficits are going to look smaller. So that sort of leads me to turn to, to Steve and say, okay, you know are are the projections of gdp you know overly robust are they rosy you know given what we know about today's economic climate because obviously if we've got really robust ah uh, a uh, projections of gdp then a debt to gdp ratio that looks stable is probably inaccurate and so i would probably say then you know probably not deficits on a dollar basis but also as a percentage of gdp you know are not going down every year so
1: Steve, uh, why don't we turn to you then on, on that? Because, you know, as Tori mentioned, any, any budget is really built on the economic assumptions that are going into it. And one of our criteria is whether the economic assumptions in a budget are plausible. Uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, the short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is um it's complicated as as Tori was suggesting. So you know when they were put the, putting the budget together this past fall, um, you know interest rates were lower and uh, inflation was lower, and therefore the outlook looked a little better. And so by the time the budget came out, I mean basically this time last year, interest rates on government bonds, you know three month T bills or ten month bond bond government bonds, were all below one percent this, you know, a year ago today, basically, they're now, uh, the three month is up to about half a percent, the 10 years up to about two and a half percent. And, you know, obviously, the government has a huge $20 trillion debt. So the higher interest rates go, the more expensive, more costly it is to to pay interest on the debt. But, you know, the president's budget, you know, and inflation, of course, back in the fall was about 4%, and it's now almost close to 8%. So there's been a huge change in both the inflation rate and in interest rates. That's not reflected in the budget. Notice they basically assume there will be a four know, or five percent inflation uh, this year, and by next year, 2023, inflation will be back down to the to the Federal Reserve's target of about about two percent. Technically, there's a difference between the Fed target because they use a different measure of inflation and what's typically cited in the budget, which is the CPI. But but roughly, you know. The the budget, because it's based on last year's numbers, was before the war in in Ukraine and before some of the the other continued supply shocks we're seeing around the world, you know, they've vastly underestimated inflation. Um, They've also, as a result, vastly underestimated interest rates because interest rates and inflation ultimately are tied together. So, you know, the near-term outlook is probably much rosier uh, in their budget than it will be in reality. Now, only, only time will tell whether, you know, the Fed is able to contain inflation Um, as quickly as the budget assumes. But in the long run, the problem, of course, is they're assuming real GDP growth of 2.3%. Now, that doesn't sound extraordinarily high, but the problem is the economy has been changing over the last few decades. We've been seeing the population age, Uh, we've seen a decline in immigration, and we've seen a decline in productivity growth. And basically, the components of of economic real economic growth are productivity and labor force. And if you look at the estimates, for example, of the Congressional Budget Office, their real GDP growth is less than two percent. Um, and so, you know, as Tory suggested, if you you know inflate your real GDP growth numbers, then you can make your debt look more manageable because you're assuming the economy is growing faster. Uh, and therefore, the debt is shrinking relative to your economy. But I think, by most you know, private forecasters' assumptions, and by the Congressional Budget Office assumptions, two point three percent is you know on a sustained, continuous basis, which is what the president's budget assumes. I, I think is overly optimistic, and it, it makes a big difference. A one percent higher GDP growth rate is about three trillion dollars over a decade. Mm-hmm. So we're talking real money when you assume a higher higher GDP growth rate than what may actually occur. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because anybody looking at those numbers would as you said look at 2.3% growth and say, "Oh, well, you know, that, that there's nothing uh, overly up opt- to that's not a rosy scenario, but as, you know, we've oh, been warning spatters. for years. Uh-huh. Yeah, we we've been warning for years about the, that uh, slowdown of the labor force growth and um I, I don't really see any policies in the budget that would greatly affect that. I mean, there's not like a huge.
0: Well, course, <laughs> it, you know, if anything, the policies might affect it negatively. I mean, they're proposing the millionaire surcharge or, or the multimillionaire surcharge. They're proposing a higher corporate tax rate. And you know, part of productivity growth is investment in, in machinery and plant and equipment and the things that give workers the tools they need to be productive. And if you raise taxes on capital, you're probably going to get a little less of it. And so that might actually wave in the opposite direction.
1: Tori, is it uh, when you look at the at the proposals, at the president's proposals for taxes and spending, do they roughly offset each other year by year and over the long uh, over the 10 year budget window? I should point out this is a 10 year budget that we're talking about.
2: The easy answer to that one I think is is no uh, when you take a look at the, uh, the the primary deficit in in the president's budget, which is what would
1: define primary
2: revenues minus expenses uh, excluding net interest. So we're putting debt service to the side. And when you take a look at the the primary deficit, it bounces around. It shrinks a little bit, then it grows a little bit, then it shrinks a little bit, and then it grows even more towards the end of the budget window. And at the end of the budget window, you know our primary deficit is higher uh, than it is, you know, at the beginning of our budget window. So, do they do a good job of offsetting their their programs and their costs in each and every year of the budget window? No, they don't.
1: Um, one of the uh, one of the other criteria that we have is uh, transparency, mm-hmm. um, a, a f- to be credible. A budget needs to be transparent so people can understand what's in it. Mm-hmm. And and part of transparency is uh, budget gimmicks. Right. We, we kind of talked about one thing that you can do to uh, make the numbers look better, which is inflate the economic projections. Mm-hmm. But are there any other uh, uh, policy gimmicks or procedural gimmicks that uh, that you picked up on in the budget, uh, Tori?
2: I think the big thing that stands out to me is this this giant reserve fund that they've set aside for uh, a second attempt at the Build Back Better agenda. Uh,
1: can't call it Build Back Better.
2: Okay, (laughs) (laughs) Reconciliation attempt version 2.0. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the president hasn't been able to enact his his prized uh, uh, plan that shall not be (laughs) named. (laughs) Uh, So they're making a second attempt at it, uh, but rather than specify those policies in his budget, which would enable us to get a look at what he's proposing and what are the budgetary contours of those proposals in every year of the budget window, He just said, we're going to throw all these things into a black box. We're going to call it a deficit neutral reserve fund, which is like a bookmark, a placeholder. Hey, we know we want to do some of these things. We don't know exactly what we want to do. So we can't really tell you what the budgetary effects of that are going to be, other than to say that we know that it's going to be deficit neutral over over the the 10-year budget window. Well, the problem is, is that there's a lot that can happen underneath the surface Uh, when all you're stipulating is that this thing's going to be deficit neutral over over 10 years. You can raise deficits enormously in years one through nine and then rely on a ridiculous pay for in the 10th year that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody knows that a future Congress is going to repeal. So, I, you know, in terms of transparency, I think I, I would give the, the, the administration a big failing grade on that just because this, this deficit neutral reserve fund, you know, it has the capacity to be you know, really large in terms of the number of, of programs and, and, and tax increases that, that fit underneath it. And then and to that end, too, you know, aside from not knowing what they're going to spend it on, we don't know how they're going to offset those costs. Are we looking at a big, giant tax increase um, and I think you know uh, people would want to know that voters would want to know that if there is going to be a big giant tax increase, who's it going to be levied on? You know, with some of the other you know typical tax increases, for example, the, the tax increase on on ultra wealthy individuals, an increase in the corporate income tax. You know, those are already specified elsewhere in the budget, so presumably they're going to be used to offset. Help offset other proposals that the president has specified. So that leaves you with this big giant question mark. Well, what you know, revenue increases is is he going to propose and our Democrats going to rely on to offset the costs of the programs that are in this deficit neutral reserve fund? They're
0: going to yeah, close thought, the tax gap. Go ahead, gap. Then, Steve. Go They're going to close the
2: tax gap.
1: They're yeah. going to close the tax, the tax gap. gap. Yeah. There was uh, well, I just want to say, Steve, before getting back to you on that, the. Uh, you know there's there are explicit tax increases quite a quite a few that would uh, i think something like 2.5 trillion roughly right. and there are explicit spending increases of about 1.5 trillion uh so there there that's where they're saying they're generating the deficit reduction from but you know if you've already got 2.5 trillion worth of tax increases that Boy, uh, it's, it's hard to think of more that would go on to funding this um, standby agenda from the leftover Build Back Better. But, but one, thing where, one place they could go is, the, uh, is the, the so-called tax gap, which they seem to have left out after plugging it pretty hard last year. Uh, Steve, uh, what do you think about uh, closing the tax gap as a way of uh, adding revenues?
0: Well, in theory, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, anytime you say everybody should pay their fair share and people shouldn't be able to use, you know, the loopholes and all the tricks in the law to, to zero out their tax liability, that something seems unfair about that. And we don't like tax cheats. And, you know, it's perfectly plausible to say, yeah, we could do a better job enforcing the law. It's very complicated. You know, business accounting and multinational corporations, you know, they can play shell games with how they report income and where they report income. And so, you know, there's a, there's a clear case to be made for, you know, making the tax code more fair uh, and making sure everybody pays what they owe. But when you look at some of the administration's estimates, I mean, they're talking billions and tens and hundreds of billions. It's sort of, it seems a little hard to believe that they're going to be able to, to keep turning over rocks and, come up with tens of billions of dollars which is what they you know think think they're going to find it you know it, it it's hard it's you know it's hard to know what the real magnitude is
1: yeah another uh, thing that's kind of hidden is they're assuming that there's going to be a big tax increase in 2025 at the end of 2025 so in the years beyond that, there's a set of tax cuts that were enacted in 2017 that are scheduled to expire at the end of 2025. And if you assume that all of those provisions which apply to individuals are going to expire, then you get a big jump in revenues from 2026 on, which makes your long-term numbers look a lot better. And part of the uh, the deficit reduction uh, calculation here is that that revenue gusher is going to come in. They they don't have to make that as an explicit policy because it happens by law. Right, but
2: law.
1: It, it probably you would assume they uh, they wouldn't want that uh, to happen. Uh, well,
2: and the 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 cherry on the top of that that ice cream sundae, Bob, is that those tax cuts expire at the. Uh, you know, the year after a presidential election, right? We we have another presidential election in 2024. How many candidates for president do you think are going to be falling all over themselves to promise voters that, oh, I will promise that we will make those tax cuts permanent. I will not let those tax cuts expire because those tax cuts affect individuals. You know, when the Republicans passed their tax cut in 2017, all the business side stuff, all the corporate stuff, all the international stuff, that was made permanent, but the stuff that affects small businesses and individuals was made temporary. So, yeah, what are the odds that we're actually that any president, Republican or Democrat, and any Congress, Republican or Democrat, is going to let those tax cuts expire?
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget, which was released earlier this week. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman and Concord's Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget, which was released this week. And we're going through some criteria that the Concord Coalition set out prior to the budget's release. Uh, Tori, one of them was whether the major budget categories have uh, plausible numbers.
2: Mm-hmm. So by, by major budget categories, we mean sort of like the, the big, the top line numbers that we look at in terms of revenue and spending. And I think we've talked about a lot of revenues already and how the, the revenue line is probably pretty implausible. So on the spending side, and you know, we sort of look at what's happening on the mandatory spending side and what's happening on the discretionary spending side. You know, The mandatory spending side pretty much tends to grow uh, uh, on automatic pilot unless Congress changes the law. But the discretionary side of things is is where Congress comes into play, and they get to decide every year how much we're spending on the discretionary side. And they've got defense spending and non-defense spending on the discretionary mm-hmm. side. And I think the one thing that really sticks out to me on the discretionary side, number one, is that we're basically—I mean, the, the 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 Biden administration is is trumpeting, you know, this this big uh, cut in discretionary spending. Um, Well, if you take a look at the discretionary spending that they're proposing for next year, it's pretty much where uh, the Congressional Budget Office thought we would be in 2023 before COVID started. So this big drop, you know, on the discretionary side is largely what we're calling the COVID dividend, right? That we're not spending, you know, $5 trillion, $6 trillion on on COVID emergency spending. So that's why you see the, the big drop. But then when you look underneath uh the hood, when you pop the hood on discretionary spending and, and take a look at the trends that are underneath that, um, the one thing that sticks out to me is defense spending. Um, the, the Biden administration is including a pretty significant increase in dispense, defense spending for 2023. But when you look at the out years beyond that, you know, defense spending is isn't even keeping up with inflation. Um, so the, you know the budget again is you know as a, as a as a campaign budget it's it's making a nod to what's happening happening in ukraine and eastern europe and how that's affecting our defense posture there by providing more money for fiscal 2023 but there's almost implied in there an assumption that then suddenly that's going to stop that suddenly we're going to reach kumbaya and and uh yeah there there won't be any more need for uh, an increase in defense spending um and that defense spending won't even need to, to keep up with inflation. And I just I think we all know that that assumption is never going to survive contact with the appropriators in Congress. So, you know, when it comes to the the, the top line aggregates in 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 this budget, you know, we, the revenue line I think is implausible, and the uh, discretionary spending line is impl- implausible. I don't see them as being realistic uh, projections of what will happen in the future.
1: What about uh, net interest? That's uh, that's a, an important part of the budget. So if the policies don't add up, you add more debt. Right. That debt has to be serviced, and that's the line in the budget called net interest. What what's happening with right. that?
2: I think the really scary thing about net interest is that even under this scenario of rosy revenues and and spending that's 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 that's, that's you know sort of held in check. We still have big increases in net interest. You know, when you look at the the budget that the president put forward, net interest triples by the end of the the, the the budget window, the 10th year of the budget window. And and here I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Gordon Gray, who works for American Action Forum. And when he took a look at some of these net interest numbers, uh, he realized that net interest in the 10th year of this budget window would total $1.1 trillion, which is bigger than any, which will be bigger than any federal. Agencies budget in that tenth year. So our biggest, you know, line item on an operational basis in the tenth year will be net interest, and that alone should scare anybody who is within listening distance of this radio program.
1: <laughs> well, and that's, uh, I mean, Steve, if the if the interest. Uh, rates uh, have to go up uh, higher than what the budget is projecting. Obviously, that would mean that the, those numbers Tory were talking about would be even higher.
0: Yeah, right. Obviously, the, the the interest cost is a function of the interest rate. And if you're making optimistic interest rate assumptions, then your interest number is going to be too low. So,
1: um, so there's a, a potential vulnerability there. What about... Um... It, taking a much uh, broader look now at the budget, we we often talk about uh, generational fairness or generational equity uh, as a goal of fiscal policy. Um, just in general terms, um, Steve, you've taken a look at it from that perspective. What, what observations would you have about the uh, generational implications of the 10-year budget?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, economists look at, what they call generational equity. I mean, the, the traditional argument is, you know, we're borrowing money today and our kids and our grandkids are going to have to pay it back. And so it's sort of viewed as, you know, you, you hear the expression, oh, it's fiscal child abuse, or it's, you know, we're, you know, leaving our, our kids and grandkids a big mortgage. And I don't think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Um, you know, there, there's actually several ways to think about it. I mean, the, the easiest way for economists is to say, okay, well, it's not the debt itself, it's the borrowing. In other words, The debt is a function of how much you borrow, the deficit. So if you borrow money this year, it adds to the debt, and that's a cumulative number. And so the the effect of, of deficit borrowing, deficit spending, is that the government has to go into the credit markets and borrow money. And when the government borrows the money, the money is not available for the private sector. And so the argument is deficit spending crowds out private investment. And so what happens is that our kids... In the future, we'll hold more government bonds, and they'll have less in terms of, of private investment, which would be the, the physical capital, the buildings, equipments, machinery, the productive capital that grows the economy. And so the burden of the debt is essentially, you know, future generations will inherit a smaller, less productive economy, and therefore they're going to be worse off. There's a slightly other way to think about it, though, is, you know, the the, the government bonds are part of your financial wealth. So if you view this as what they call the life cycle consumption pattern. So as people are young and they're working, they borrow money and some of them, or they don't borrow money, they save, they save over their lifetime. So while they're working, they're saving. And some of the things they buy are stocks and bonds from private companies. And some of the things they buy are government bonds. And the government bonds are held by pension funds and insurance companies, and they're part of financial wealth. So when they retire, they draw down their wealth, and so essentially, the government debt becomes a transfer where younger generations save, and then the older generations sell the bonds off, and so you, in a sense, have this net transfer of income from the young to the old in terms of buying bonds and redeeming bonds, and you know it sort of creates what they call you know it's it's like a you know a a, a non fraudulent Ponzi scheme where essentially. <laughs> Each generation passes on the debt and then they sell the debt back to the, to the younger generation. And, and as long as that is sustainable, that you know it's, it's perfectly, you know, well, let's say it this way, as, as long as the economy is healthy and growing and interest rates are low, you can maintain this sort of intergenerational transfer in perpetuity. But if the interest uh, rates are too high, and the economic growth is too low, and the size of the debt becomes too large, then you run the risk of imposing a huge burden on future generations, which is they're gonna to have to start paying this debt back. You can't keep rolling it over forever. Uh, and or the Fed has to buy the debt and, it, and cause inflation. So when future generations get paid off, they're being paid in inflated dollars that are worth less than they originally uh, loaned to the government. And so in that case, it. it imposes a future uh, burden on, it imposes a burden on future generations.
1: So we really uh, would need to look beyond the 10-year uh, numbers here, um, but the, uh, the, the, the deficits and the debt are rising, although not sharply, they're just, you know, at a high, relatively high place to where they normally have been. Uh, Yeah, I mean,
0: it's hard to know. Again, in their baseline, they have economic growth, in my view, being too optimistic. And they have interest rates arguably a little bit low, given the size of the debt. And so while it appears that it's sustainable in their budget over the 10 years, if their assumptions prove to be overly optimistic, and if you extend the baseline beyond 10 years, you know, it, it, it's anybody's guess how sustainable it really is. And, and and I suggest that, you know, it's probably not as sustainable as we would like it to be or hope it is.
1: Well, speaking of sustainability, I mean, one of the issues that works into generational fairness is the uh, financial condition of social security and Medicare. And, you know, The trustees have been warning for years and years and years that both systems are going to have uh, shortfalls. They already have cash shortfalls, uh, and that means that they're paying out more than they're taking in through the dedicated sources like payroll tax and and, uh, Medicare premiums, and we're getting to the point where we're very, very close now to the insolvency date for both of those Trust funds, Uh, Social Security Retirement uh, Fund, uh, I think is uh, scheduled to become insolvent by 2033 and the uh, Medicare uh, Part A Trust Fund by 2026. This is creeping into the budget window. I mean, the Medicare insolvency date is within the budget window in 2026 and the Social Security one is looming just beyond. And I think that, um, you know, uh, for this, this becomes a real issue uh, for seniors because you really don't want to wait until the absolute last minute to make changes because right. then you have to do sudden things like a sudden tax increases or benefit increases, uh, benefit cuts, uh, or premium uh, uh, increases. And the default mechanism is you just borrow more. You just go to general revenues and you say, well, we, we can't do these draconian sudden changes. We're going to just borrow and uh, add to the debt. So, uh, you know, I worry that there's nothing in the budget that even really acknowledges these problems, much less do anything about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of a, a hidden generational issue here. The, the failure to take on the known challenge, which has been known for quite some time, of Medicare and Social Security solvency.
2: Absolutely.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord's Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing various aspects of President President Biden's 2023 fiscal year budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. welcome back to facing the future i'm your host bob bixby concord coalition policy director tori gorman and Concord's chief economist steve robinson and i are discussing president biden's uh, fiscal year 2023 budget which was released earlier this week Uh, tori you wrote a blog for us last week titled we're gonna need a bigger boat (laughs) <laughs> and uh, in that blog, you concluded, and I'm quoting here, unless and until lawmakers, voters, and other stakeholders are willing to consider modernization of our entitlement programs and other spending controls, we don't have nearly enough revenues to prevent a future budget crisis. Simply mm-hmm. put. We're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger boat. Exactly. So, Could you could you kind of expand on that uh, analogy and uh, and and maybe how it relates to the current president's budget?
2: Yeah, cue the theme from Jaws. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean when you just just take a look at the facts on the ground, Um, and we're gonna need more revenue. That's what I mean by we're gonna need a bigger boat. We're gonna need more revenue. Let's just take for example. The, the idea of Social Security and Medicare, which you were talking about just moments ago, we know that those trust funds are gonna exhaust themselves within the next 10, 12 years. And the, the you know, the, the the talking point on Capitol Hill was, oh, well, we'll be able to pay you know, a certain percentage of benefits. You know, we'll, oh, Social Security beneficiaries, when the trust fund goes belly up, we'll still be able to pay 78% of benefits owed. And oh, by the way, when Medicare goes belly up, we'll still be able to pay 91% of promised reimbursements to Medicare providers. Um, but I think we all know that those outcomes are politically untenable. OK, there isn't a single voter that's going to sit still for those. So how are we going to fill the gap? Yeah, you know, we're going to fill the gap with more revenues. Uh, The war in Ukraine. Okay, that's going to have lasting effects on the federal budget. Okay, Um, that this we are in a now we are new defense posture. A new Cold War has begun. And the United States and NATO are going to respond with bigger defense budgets. We're going to respond with a bigger foreign aid budget. You know, we're going to need to provide aid for Ukrainian refugees and relief agencies. But also when the war ends, we're going to have to shift to reconstruction like a brand new Marshall Plan, if you will, for for Ukraine um you, we look at the discretionary side of, of the budget discretionary spending is no longer constrained by spending caps you know between 2011 and 2022 congress was having to abide by the budget control act and that constrained to put a cap on discretionary spending those constraints have since expired there's no discussion of renewing that regime and so discretionary spending is whatever Congress decides it's going to be. And when you take a look at the the 22 omnibus that we just passed, you know, there was a 13 percent increase in just the baseline discretionary spending. And that ignores all the other emergency stuff that they added on top of that. Um, Emergencies. okay. I think the last decade has shown us between, you know, we've been bookended now between the Great Recession, a global pandemic and a new war in Eastern Europe. Emergencies always arise. So we're gonna need more revenue uh, to offset the costs of that as well. And then you get into the stuff you know that, that, that Congress wants to do. I mean, in general, Congress wants to help people, right? They want to build new roads and bridges. They want to clean up polluted tap water. They want to bring broadband into rural areas. They want to modernize mass transit. They want clean air. They want to address adjust, adjust climate change. You know, they, they want to make the, the, the working environment more palatable for families whether it's you know uh, 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 government-funded child care or child tax credits okay so Congress wants to be proactive in helping people but that costs money uh and then of course inflation and you know if, if we are now in a new era of, of of higher inflation higher inflation means the 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 interest rates that the federal government pays on our debt will have to go up when interest rates go up. That means that our interest costs are going to go up. So when you stir all these facts together into a big pot, uh, you understand that, guess what, folks, we're going to need more revenue. We're going to need a bigger boat.
3: So this is, uh, uh, we seem to have lost Bob uh, temporarily. Hopefully we get him back soon, but let's, let's explore that a little bit Tori because if that is the case, we don't seem to see in President Biden's proposed budget. And I also would like to get Steve's take on this too. If we're going to need more revenue, we don't seem to see a lot of um, more revenue options other than this tax on multimillionaires. Um, and I guess so. What are some of the options that we could realistically see that would generate the kind of revenue we need? And then what might be some of the economic impacts of that? That that we need to be thinking about.
2: Yeah, so here's the here's the the conundrum in the, in the president's budget, uh, or the irony, I should say, is that the tax increases that he has proposed. I mean, he's proposed about two and a half trillion dollars in tax increases, but the biggest revenue generators in his budget are tax proposals that Democrats themselves have already rejected. OK, we know that that Arizona Democratic Senator Kristen Cinema has rejected any kind of increase in the corporate income tax. Biden budget proposes an increase in the corporate income tax up to 28%. Okay, She's already rejected that. So that proposal is not gonna get through the Senate. Um, the Biden budget proposes uh, a wealth tax on ultra on the ultra wealthy. Uh, Senator Wyden, Democrat from Oregon has already proposed that. And that literally died within, I think, 20 minutes of it being proposed. There are a whole bunch of Democrats stepping back and saying, no, we are not gonna tax unrealized income. So it's, it's interesting to see, uh, it will be interesting to see what kind of tax increases, what kind of revenue increases, you know, aside from closing the tax gap uh, that that lawmakers in the House and the Senate are going to support. I mean, and I'll I'll say the dirty little word that nobody's talking about yet, but I think that's where we're going to go eventually. And that's a VAT, a value added tax. We're going to tax consumption. And honestly, I I think it's probably the one of the most efficient ways to tax uh, people because you can't, avoid it when 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 you're being taxed at the point of purchase whether it's a luxury home, a luxury boat, you know, uh, a luxury automobile, you're paying that tax right then and there. It makes it a lot harder to hide that you can't hide your 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 consumption. You can't hide your purchases the way you can hide your 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 income uh, as a wealthy individual. So, I'll say it, I think we're headed towards a VAT.
3: So, Steve, um, one of the arguments about you know, different forms of increasing revenue um, that, that we've heard from a few people over the last few weeks has been, you, wanna, um, you want to enact some kind of revenue increases that uh, have as little impact on the economy as possible. Now, Tori just mentioned the value-added tax. But what are some realistic options that you know, w- would have the least amount of economic blowback because you also don't want to impact your GDP numbers. Um, You don't want want a a consequence of any need for increasing revenue to mean that you might get less because we have overall uh, an impact, a negative impact on productivity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general agreement among economists that taxing consumption is far preferable than taxing income. Um, and, it, you know, it's sort of to some people, it might sound like a distinction without a difference, but it, it, it you know, criti- critically, um, you know, taxing consumption um, is, has a, a more neutral effect on the economy um, than taxing income because a, a vast portion of income is income to capital. And economists know that if you tax anything, you're going to get less of it. Um, and if you tax capital, um, the investors can simply choose to invest somewhere else. You know, the, the argument is, well, we can tax labor, uh, tax workers, but they generally don't choose to to move somewhere else, uh, meaning to another country. So labor is considered less um, elastic or a less mobile. But 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 investment capital, the 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 dollars that go into buying the plant and equipment and the stocks and the bonds, the financial wealth, you know, that's, there there used to be a book called Quicksilver Capital. And then Quicksilver is this notion that something that can flow rapidly and and easily from place to place. And that's the concern is that when you tax income, a portion of that income is capital income and capital income can go somewhere else. It has the option of investing elsewhere. Mm. And so by shifting from a income tax to a consumption tax, you can tax the consumption of rich people who have capital income, and the argument is that that's more efficient. The problem, of course, is that a consumption tax is viewed as regressive because low-income people also <laughs> consume, and they consume a greater share of their income. And so you know, the political economic compromise is to somehow figure out how to tax consumption in a way that's not regressive. And typically that's done by providing a rebate so that the low-income people either get an exemption of a certain amount or they get a rebate, we can be paid monthly or annually. And so you would offset the cost of the tax for low-income consumers and that uh, credit or deduction or however uh, however it is designed can be done in a way that phases out at higher incomes. And so, you know, there's various ways of, you know, the the consumed income tax and, you know, uh, you can basically have a very short, simple tax form and allow people to to simply report their uh, income and they subtract their savings. And by definition, income minus savings equals consumption. And so in some respects, the income tax and the consumption tax would look similar if done on an individual's tax return. Uh, but ultimately, it would be a tax on consumption, whether it's a value-added tax or consumed income tax, you could achieve basically the same result.
1: You know, one of the things that really struck me, and uh, I know you, you were looking up some numbers on this story, but the, the, the projected deficit for this year is, um, for all the talk about deficit reduction going into this budget, we're actually landing in about the same place as the CBO uh, was projecting before the pandemic hit. In other words, if you go back to January 2020, just before the pandemic hit and look at what they were projecting for 2023, it's about what the Biden budget is projecting for 2023. Uh, So (laughs) it's like all of this, uh, all of this uh, stuff. And we're kind of back at the same place. Don't get me wrong. I like a budget that has deficit reduction in it, but a lot of it seems to be just sort of getting Back, you know, the, the economy recovering, the COVID money spending out, and uh, you go go back to what the uh, pre-pandemic path looked like. Uh, maybe slightly uh, higher revenues or higher spending, but uh, the deficit coming out at about the same place. And so, I, I think when we talk about deficit reduction, we ought to be looking at something beyond that. Real deficit reduction is going to take some tough policy choices in the future, uh, which don't appear apparent in, in this budget. That's all the time we have uh, this week. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson, our chief economist and uh, policy director, have been talking about the uh, budget uh, submitted by President Biden earlier this week. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.